You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, it's good to be here this morning. And I'll tell you, one of the things we're, we're doing this, we're coming to the end of our Life of David series. And so if you would, would you turn to 2 Samuel chapter 23. We will look at um, the first part of that chapter. As you're turning there, I want to give you one announcement. This is on behalf of um, Susan George and Michelle Carr. Uh, We partner, one of the ministries Bethel has is we partner with Griffin Elementary. And um, this uh, week, the May the 14th and May the 15th, or I guess next week, uh, is star testing out there. And so we want to, as a, as a church body, provide um, some support and some love for the teachers at that school by providing a meal and some snacks and some things like that. So uh, they are coordinating that. You can find that information in the last e-news, or if you can't track down their emails, feel free to call the office this week, and Kay can get you connected um, with Susan and Michelle and, and help out with that. So we'd love for you to to be a part of that. All right, so 2 Samuel 23, uh, David's last words, that's what the title in my Bible says uh, at the heading uh, of that chapter. And I'll begin it this way, that Donald uh, McCullough, he wrote a book in, um, I think it was 1995, and the title of the book was called Trivialization of God. And he tells, he's illustrating the importance of of what it means to to fear the Lord, what, what it is to have the the fear of, of, of God in your life, in the worshipful aspect. And so he uses this uh, story about a guy named Arturo uh, Tuscanini. And he was, a, at the time, in the late 19th, early 20th century, one of the most acclaimed musicians uh, on the planet. And so he tells about this one performance, and the orchestra had just finished performing Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. And when they had just finished, the audience, they rose to their feet, and they began to clap and shout with delight, you know, as as you do. And Toscanini emerges. He he comes up, and he he stands up before the crowd, and he's waving them off, telling them to to stop with their applause. Then he turns to the orchestra, and he shouts, you're nothing! Super encouraging guy. And... uh, then he, then he says about himself, I'm nothing. And then he begins to shout, Beethoven is everything. He is everything. He is everything. It's Beethoven. In, in many ways, I want you to hear this morning, that is, that is kind of David's song this morning. These last words of David. The great king of Israel, the one in whom, we, you know, the, the, for the rest of history, we look forward to the coming, you know, king, the, the son of David, the, the, the one who will reign as the Davidic king. And yet David will stand up this morning and he will say in these last words, it's not me. It's God. It's all of God. As we think about this, these last words, in fact, chapter 23, verse 1 begins, now these are the last words of David. They're not 
I don't think necessarily these are his deathbed words. They're not, he's not like on the deathbed and he's, you know, um, you, you give me a drink of water and then, and then he utters these, these are the last words like that. Rather, this is more like the last official declaration of the king. Maybe his last will and testament. These are the last official recorded words of David as the king of Israel. And as these words are being spoken, David is not looking back on his life. David is actually looking forward. He says it this way. Look at what 23, um, chapter 23, verse 1. Now, these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of, God of, of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. And the Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. When it says oracle there, it's, it means a, a prophetic utterance. It, he's, so he's looking forward, but he's not simply looking forward. He's, it, it's a divine word. It, it's a divine looking. He, he is speaking for God. So it's not just David looking forward here. It's, it's God looking forward through the mouth of David. In David's own self-description, did you notice this? He starts out and he calls himself, so this is the oracle of David, the son of, of Jesse. I mean, he doesn't refer to himself here as a king, it, it, although he is. I mean, that's what others would call him. Anybody that came into David's presence at this time in his life, near the end of his life, they, they come into his presence as the king. He's referred to as King David. There's not anybody around that would have called him the son of Jesse. They would have come into his presence and they would have bowed before him. But he doesn't identify himself as a king because David's not thinking about himself that way. As David thinks about himself at the end of his life, he says, I know who I am. I'm the son of Jesse. The, the, the youngest son of, of Jesse, the shepherd. I'm the, I'm the runt of the litter. I, I, God came to me when I was a boy watching my dad's sheep. That's who I am. See, David has nothing to say or he's not going to have anything to do here with his own glory. What he's, what he's looking at is he's looking at, at what God has done. Everything that God has done, not what he has done. There is last recorded word. Listen, others will eulogize David. Others will say nice things about David when he dies. They will speak of a life well lived, although they will all sit there at that service and realize, you know, there's more to this life than can be included in this eulogy. And we often hear people talk. I mean, maybe you've heard them talk about it, you know, inspiringly, where they say, you know, you know, this is how tombstones work. They begin with the day you were born, and they end, you know, with the day that you died, the day you were deceased. And, and those are two dates, but what matters the most, you know, you've heard it, right, is the dash in the middle. What are you going to do with the dash? And a life is made by what happens in between there. Well, that may be what David's getting at. 
but I don't think he's getting at it the way we usually think about it. He came into the world as the son of Jesse. And, and however it is that he leaves this world, whenever it is that he leaves this world, and whatever has happened since then, it's not what he has done. It's what God has done. See, the things that, that David have done in his life, the, the things worthy of praise or the, or the human misery and sin that he's experienced, they are all but a shadow in the light of what God's done. David, David did not add to it with his great works. And David did not take away from it with his sin and his failure. It was God's work in his life. So look, look at what he says. He recognizes the work of God in his life. He says, listen, I was the man who was raised on high. In other words, I'm not a self-made man, and neither am I the sum total of all of my failures. He was anointed, he said. It's a rich and pregnant pregnant statement. I mean, the, the, the word is the same word we get the word Messiah from. I was raised up by God. I was anointed by Him. And then notice how he describes God. Anointed of the God of Jacob. See, again, I, I think here David is deliberate. I mean, there's a recognition and a character and the faithfulness of God. He could have easily said, look, uh, the God of Abraham or the God of Israel or the God uh, who is the maker of the heavens and the earth or the God of creation. He could have said all of those things about it. But when he is describing himself as a one being anointed, he says, the anointed of the God of Jacob. And you know why I think he says that? Have you ever read Jacob's life? If we were to do a study of Jacob's life, we're going to write a book. And, uh, we titled the book, um, The Success of Jacob. It wouldn't be a very long book. It, it, it's really more like a pamphlet, you know? Maybe a track or a bumper sticker. There's just not a lot to say great about Jacob. Now, if we were going to have a book and the title of it was going to be the failures of Jacob. This is a multi-volume book, all right? I mean, this is a guy who, I mean, from the womb, he's trying to rob his brother. And then he ends up deceiving his father and deceiving his brother and deceiving his father-in-law and being deceived by his father-in-law and then deceiving his wives and his wives deceiving them and then his sons deceiving him and by the way, Jacob's name means the deceiver. That's Jacob. And yet, you know what? God chose Jacob in the womb. God chose Jacob before he was born. And God never quit on Jacob. And loved him and was gracious to him and brought him along. Because God had said to Jacob, the blessing is going to come through you. And not even Jacob could mess that up. And I think about David must have spent much of the end of his life probably reflecting upon Jacob. Anointed, anointed by the God of Jacob, that God. 
And then he calls himself, if you notice this at the end of verse 1, the sweet psalmist of Israel. It's actually another beautiful, poetic description here. You, you might get translated, Israel's beloved singer. I mean, the struggle of David's humanity and the grace of a God who is faithful to him. David sang about that. And he didn't keep it to himself. He put pen to paper and then words to lyrics and, and, then, and then to stringed instruments. And he sang it. And then, and then the nation sang with him. I mean, David's life very easily could have just been some sad country song, you know? And then, and then Israel, just, you know, built a bunch of honky-tonks and drink long-neck beers and, and, and sing David's songs. But that is not it. David's songs, he sang of the grace of God and it's transformed into timeless melody. You read the Psalms and you read about the depths of David's life, the depths of his sadness and the depths of his grief and his doubt and his... And yet, it is filled with but the grace of God, but my rock and my shield, but my fortress forever. It's interesting how David reflects upon his life. Well, in verse 2, he says this, The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. There is an authority of David's words that are beyond his office as a king. Listen, it would be enough if he spoke as a king. I mean, he's, he's King David. His, his wish is command. But David is going to speak from a greater authority than himself. In fact, all that he says here, he attributes to the Spirit of God. That the Spirit of the Lord, His Word, His Word is on my tongue. It's a point where we talk about, listen, the, the Word of God is inspired. The infinite, matchless, sovereign, incomprehensible God of the universe has chosen to reveal Himself to mankind. And He does that with a spoken word. He does that with a word written. The inspiration of the Spirit of God through finite, sinful, limited men. And God's Word comes through in all of its divinity and all of its deity and all of its authority. And that's how David speaks, is with the authority of God. Don't miss the display of God's grace here. I mean, divine utterances coming through the mouth of a man whose life was scattered with sin. Listen, it's not so much that, that David's sin disqualified him from being used by God. Certainly, that would be true from a human standpoint. I mean, David blew it. Rather, here's the deal. 
What is more right to say is that, is that God's grace, His, God's faithfulness, God's purposes, God's holiness, it's God Himself who chooses David. God qualifies David to be used by His purposes, not because of David, but simply because of God's pleasure. Listen, for you, you want to you see that in living color, in kind of technicolor, you can go to Ephesians chapter 1. And you can meditate this afternoon and for the rest of your life on the first 14 verses of Ephesians chapter 1. And you could, you could look at that, meditate it on it, and study it and memorize it, and, and you, you couldn't plumb the depths of it by the end of your life. There's no way. God's pleasure, His love. Now, look at what he says in verse 3. It says, the God of Israel has spoken, the rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, when, like the rain that makes the grass sprout from the earth. So, so you look at this, and, and so the God of Israel has spoken. The, the rock of Israel has spoken. And you might read it and go, okay, David's saying that God is saying, hey, David, your rule has been just, and your rule has been one that has been characterized by the fear of God. And while that may be true, I don't think that's what David is fully saying. I think David would say, look, whatever is just about my reign and my rule, that's, that's owing to God. Whatever has, has been uh, marked by the fear of God, that's owing to God. But what David is doing here is he's not looking backwards at his own reign. He's, he's not saying, okay, well, this is how I ruled. He's looking forward to one who will reign. And that reign will be characterized in verse 4 like, like he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes the grass sprout from the earth. Each of those three phrases will be used later in the Old Testament, probably drawing upon David to speak about the coming Messiah, the one who will save mankind. Maybe better to say a ruler over the human race will arise, a just ruler, and he'll exercise dominion in the spirit of the fear of God. What David's talking about there is the coming son of, not just David, the coming son of God, Jesus. Then he goes on, look at verse 5, for does not my house stand so with God? For he's made with me an everlasting covenant ordered in all things and secure. For, he will not cause, for, will, for will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? As David thinks about the outcome of his life, what he is looking to is not the sum total of the events of his life. He looks back to the promise that God made him. That's what David is counting on for his life, is the promises that God has made him. But in verse 6, he even sees the coming promises. He also sees a coming judgment. But worthless men are like 
thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they will be utterly consumed with fire. There is a judgment coming. One way to describe, I think, David's last words would be to say this. They are, in many ways, the theology of David. I mean, it's what, what he staked his life on. It's, it's what he believed about God. What, what, what he believed about God trumped what he could see in his own life. I mean, it's the commentary on his own life. And in that commentary, as he looks back on his life, and then as he looks forward, it is informed by and it is filtered through what he believed about God, the promises of God. In fact, the New Testament speaks very highly of David. And in some ways, after the study of the life of David, and you come across David's name in the New Testament, and it speaks highly of him, you, part of you is like, hey, that's really great. I mean, you get kind of uncomfortable. Like, Did the New Testament writer not read the whole story of David? Did he miss the part where David absolutely blew it? I mean, there's Bathsheba, and then there's Uriah, and then there's his children, and then there's his family, and then there's the civil war. What you see in the New Testament, though, is that every instance that David is mentioned, every instance you find David in the New Testament, the commentary about David's life is not in regard to his success or his failure, not, not of the things that he did. It is grounded in the substance and the surety of what he believed. Listen, David was held accountable for what he did in his life. There's there is the consequence, and there is the scandal, and there is the grief over the sin in his life. And it is the substance of the Psalms, you see it, the highs and the lows. But listen to this. While David is disciplined and while he suffers the consequences, David is not condemned by God. He's not condemned, not because of what he did to make up for the bad things in his life. This is often kind of how we see it. You know, the bad things in your life, and then you say, well, i got, well, I got to do a bunch of good things. And we keep this internal score of bad things versus good things. And can I get far enough away from the bad things in my life with the good things that I do? And that, that's where our surety comes from, or our hope comes from. Our hope is that, you know what, maybe I can turn this thing around by just, by just living better. But that's not what David's hope is in. He is not condemned by God because of who God is. Listen, this is, this is fascinating. So in Isaiah, okay, the first two-thirds of Isaiah. So let me say it this way. If, if, you're like, if you're like down in the dumps, you know, and you're thinking, man, I need, I need to read some Scripture that will lift my spirits. Well, don't go to the beginning of Isaiah, all right? It will it, ruin you. I mean, you'll leave there and go, oh, man, this is worse than I thought. I mean, this is, this is really bad. Um, because Isaiah is writing prophecy to a people saying, 
you're rebellious, you're idolatrous, you love the world more than you love God. In fact, you're blasphemous. And, and God's judgment, His discipline, His divine hand is coming on you. But then it turns a corner. And Isaiah begins to speak about, hey, listen, but after that's over, the love of God, His faithfulness towards you will be restored. You will know what it is to be brought back by His grace. And then in Isaiah 55, he says this. Now, listen to what he says. He says, come everyone who thirsts. This is God speaking. Come everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come and buy and eat. And come and buy wine without milk and without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for what's not bread and your labor for what does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me. Eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. And then listen to this. Incline your ear. Come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. It's kind of overwhelming to think about for a second. That when God is going to describe His love, He describes it in relation to this. I'm going to love you with the kind of love I had for David. Oh, how God loved David. Not because of anything David did. It was by the very pleasure of God. And I want you to hear this morning. God loves you like that. So we've said from the beginning, this, this story, this, this life of David, it's a history, but it's more than a history. It's a theology. It's not a theology of David, it's a theology of God. I mean, you study the life of David, what you're really studying is the, is the, is the, is the love of God. And so the question this morning is, what do you believe? What, what do you believe? I mean, David's here, these are the last recorded words. You know what this is? This is like the doctrinal statement of David. This is the declaration of what he believes. This is the theology of David. The sum total of my life comes down to what I believe about God. Not how well I played on the field or what the score is on the board or... David is staking his life on the covenant, faithful love of God. And listen, faith means believing beyond what you can see, certainly beyond what David could see in his life. I think faith oftentimes means that God, He draws you further, He takes you further than your understanding of Him. I want to understand everything, and I, I do too. 
But faith is oftentimes going beyond what you understand about God. And believing Him. Do you believe? What do you believe? You know, we talk about it. I was reminded this week. We had Discover Bethel and um, on Wednesday night. And one of the things we do is we go through the doctrinal statement of Bethel. Now, I'm not going to ask you this morning how many of you, you know, raise your hand or anything. Who's read the doctrinal statement of Bethel Bible Church? I mean, I think a lot of times we think a doctrinal statement is like, okay, well, this is just a fine print. I mean, this is just like the, you know, nobody reads the fine print. I mean, we sign up for something. Here's the fine print. You never read it. You just click the box and say, you know what? I agree to that because I want this. And we think about church like that. You know, so I, just, I just want what the church has to offer here, man. I just want what the church has for me. I just, I just want all those things. And listen, I hope, they, I hope you get all those things. I hope they're really great and exceed all your expectations. I, I, I do. But we have, we're not staking our life on what the church is going to do for you in the, in the sense of, you know, meet all the uh, social media expectation needs of your life. We've come together. We have gathered together. Do you know the most important thing about us as a people gathered this morning? It is not the sum total of all the good things that we do that we bring in here this morning. It is, it is the sum total of who we believe this morning. What we believe about the God that we gathered this morning in the name of His Son, by the power of His Spirit, what do we believe about Him because that, what we believe about Him, we've staked our life on. A doctrinal statement is not just the, the fine print. It's, it's the hope that we have. And so let me, let me say it this way. There's two ways to read our doctrinal statement. One's super complicated. The other's super easy. If you were to look at a doctrinal statement, we have the, what we call essentials. Eight essentials. These essentials... I, I simply define this way. They are what the history of the church has believed for the last 2,000 years. That this is what the church affirms. It's what the church has died for through the centuries. And then there's a whole bunch of other things in our doctrinal statement related to all kinds of things because the Bible speaks about lots of stuff. This is how we've interpreted it. Some people interpret it different ways. You know what? We're not going to fight about those things. They're distinctives. They're, they're our understanding, to the best of our ability, what the Bible says about those things. doesn't mean they're not important. They're just distinctives. But these essentials, this is the, this is the grounds of our fellowship as believers. This is what we believe about God. This is what we stake our lives on being true. What do you believe? So I'm going to just walk through them real quick. I realize we haven't, haven't looked at them in a long time unless you've been to Discover Bethel. 
And the first of those is the authority and the inerrancy of Scripture. Believing that the God of the universe has communicated to us. Believing that He's a good communicator and He wants us to hear Him. So when David says, the Spirit of the Lord speaks by me, His Word is on my tongue, we believe that this Word of God is divine, that it has come from Him and through the personalities of men and women that He has inspired. But that in no way diminishes the truth, the perfection, the authority of God's Word in our life. What God has revealed about Himself has authority over us. The authority and inerrancy of Scripture. That that matters more. What God has said matters infinitely more than what I think up in my own brain or what my feelings tell me in my heart or what I'm able to rationalize. We submit to God's Word. And the second one is the Trinity. Just the history of the church has believed this. There's centuries in the church, men and women died for this. And it means simply this, that God is one. And He's three. And He's one. And it's a math problem that makes absolutely no sense to us. And the reality is we will never fully understand this in this lifetime, and I don't think we'll fully understand it in eternity. I think think eternity from now we'll sit there and we'll go, so um, the whole God is one and God is three things. Have you figured that out yet? No. But it's beautiful. It's unbelievable. Is it God to be worshipped? That's how, the, that's how the Bible describes God. In fact, David will say in Psalm 110, my, I see, you know, he's caught up by the Spirit. I see my, my Lord says to my Lord. I'm like, David, what are you talking about? Said, I don't fully even understand. But he's seeing God the Father speaking to God the Son as he's caught up by God the Spirit. And that's the Trinity. The third one is the full deity and humanity of Jesus Christ. Listen, you know why we believe this? You know why we stake our life on this? Because without this, there is no Christianity. There is no hope of salvation without this. That that Jesus is fully God. He is full deity. He is the eternal Son of the eternal God. There is no beginning. There will be no end. He has always been and always will be. That's Jesus. And at the very same time, there was a moment in history, in time, in space, that He became man. Fully man. The fullness of man. And that in no way did His humanity diminish His deity. 
And never for a second did his deity diminish his humanity. And you think, I don't fully understand that. In fact, we even have a word we don't understand. Hypostatic union, that's what we call it. Remember when my daughter was like three or four, you know? Oldest daughter, we were driving to church one morning. I was at seminary. And from the back seat, you know, she asked a super awesome theological question. She's always been our little theologian. And she said, you know, she's talking, she's probably four, I guess. She said, I don't understand. How is God God and Jesus God at the same time? And man, I got so excited, I almost wrecked the car, because I was taking Trinitarianism at the time at seminary. And so I said, oh, Maggie, it's called the hypostatic union. And Leslie reaches over and puts her hand on my knee, and she's like, you know what, I think I'll, I think I'll take this one. <laughs> because Jesus came to do what only God could do. And yet... He died the death that only we deserve. And it's in this, it's believing in this, this truth, that we have hope. Well, the next one is this, the spiritual lostness of all humanity and the need for regeneration, which simply means this, you're bad. You're not as bad as you could be by God's grace. What it means is that there's no part of your life that has not been stained by sin. Exhibit A. I'm just kidding. Don't, don't tell them I said that. All right. I mean, we came into the world as rebels. There's nothing that we can do. We can't clean ourselves. The fifth one is the substitutionary atoning death and bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what we celebrated in communion this morning. That Jesus died in our place. He was our substitute. And He laid dead in the grave three days, and He rose to new life in a new glorified body, which He has now. Jesus didn't raise from the dead and go back to how He was before the incarnation. He is eternally incarnation, seated at the right hand of the Father bodily, in a body. And that's our hope, is that we will be raised from the dead to new life in new bodies, fit for eternity. You know, our hope is not in life after death. You know, it's absent from the body, present with the Lord. That, that is a great comfort. That's not our great hope. Our hope is in life after life after death. When we're reunited with a body and Jesus reigns bodily, and we serve Him for eternity. Well, the sixth one. Um, salvation by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. That is by God's grace that you're saved. Not anything you've ever done or will do. It is by faith. Not, not what you do, but who you believe. And the person you believe is in Christ. That He has done everything necessary. And when He declared, it is finished, 
then it was finished. And there's not anything that you will ever add to it. The seventh one is the indwelling Spirit. The indwelling by the Holy Spirit of every Christian at new birth. You, you have as a believer this morning the very Spirit of God indwelling you. That the power of the Spirit of God indwells you. The power of the Spirit of God indwells you. And finally, the physical return of Jesus Christ in glory, followed by His reign on earth. It means He comes back and we win forever. And you will either spend eternity raised to new life in a new body in the kingdom of God under the reign of Christ, or you will spend eternity resurrected to eternal separation from God. That's what David means at the end of this theology that he writes. There will be those that will not hear of it, that will not believe it. Worthless men like thorns cast out. My question for you, what do you believe? The very last words of David here, they're, they're gospel words. That the hope of the world and the hope of every person is in the promise of the kingdom of God and Jesus Christ is the promised king, the righteous one. John will write in that gospel we looked at, or the, the letter we looked at at communion, he'll write it a couple of chapters before to say, my little children, I'm writing you these things so you don't sin. John says, I don't want you to sin. I don't want you to sin. Sin's bad, don't do it. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, the propitiation for our sins. This morning, our hope is in who God is. The sending of His Son to die for us and believing this morning that even now, Jesus lives and He reigns and is seated at the right hand of the Father and is our advocate. And so we didn't come in here this morning with what we bring to Him. We came in here this morning because what He's done for us. What do you believe? What do you believe? If you would, would you bow with me? Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that we would be reminded of what it is we confess to be true as believers.